So, Your Excellencies, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this first memorial lecture for Maurice Fraser. Maurice Fraser was a much-loved colleague in the European Institute here at the LSE. Sadly, as many of you know, he passed away 18 months ago. But the inauguration of this lecture series is our way of recognising what Maurice meant to us as a colleague here at the school, colleague and tutor here at the school. Maurice felt a very strong connection to the LSE. He had been a student in the Department of Government during the 1980s, Uh, and he he returned to teach here in the 1990s. Starting on a part-time basis, he rose to be one of the school's first professors in practice. For Morris, combined uh, experience in government and conservative party politics with his broad scholarly interests. Morris's intellectual roots at LSE were Michael Oakeshott, Kenneth Minogue, Ralph Darendorf, and before them, Karl Popper. Latterly, Morris rose to become head of the LSE's European Institute. We're very pleased this evening that members of Morris's family are with us here. Uh, His wife, Nicolette, uh, is joined by his sons, Constantine and Theodore, and his daughter, Celestine. And of course, there are many of Morris's friends here as well many of whom worked very closely with Morris over a number of years, and several have been generous to support this lecture uh, this evening. And there are a number of Morris's LSE's colleagues, uh, LSE colleagues and former students uh, here as well. Morris, as I say, was a popular member of the school, much liked by his colleagues in different departments and respected for his breadth of interest, his erudition, and his social skills. Morris was fun to be with, even when, on so many occasions, I felt he was wrong. (laughs) He was still fun to be with. Fun, indeed, uh, you learn things about colleagues uh, indirectly. Uh, I was struck, like uh, many others at the memorial service, to learn that Morris was a fan of punk music, Who could possibly have predicted that Morris would uh, uh, have such diverse uh, interests? But, of course, he had a devilish uh, sense of humour as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, you're all very welcome uh, here. Our speaker tonight, Ed Llewellyn, now Lord Llewellyn, knew Morris well from his time in the Conservative Party Research Department, Many of us remember Ed reading a very personal and moving letter from the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, at Morris's memorial service last year. Indeed, Ed, of course, served as David Cameron's chief of staff for over a decade. He also served as an advisor to Chris Patton, both in Hong Kong and in Brussels. And perhaps that's a way of me just plugging the next event for the European Institute, in the sense that next week... Uh, specifically on June the 11th, we will be hosting Chris Patton uh, to talk about his new book, uh, First Memoir, First Confessions. Uh, We're always very delighted when politicians wish to come and confess uh, here at the LSE, so we'll look forward to that lecture. The 11th of July, 6.30, put it in your diaries, Don't, don't um, uh, don't be away for that occasion. In addition to serving uh, 
uh, with uh, Chris Patton. Ed Llewellyn also served with Paddy Ashdown in Sarajevo. Uh, but of course, Ed became ambassador to France last year following David Cameron's resignation. Ed knows France very well. He's served in our embassy there several times, and his wife, Anne, is a French national. But before you ask, the answer is no. Ed is not an alumnus of the London School of Economics. He was a student at Oxford. Let's just get it out there and get the, <laughs> let's get the elephant in the room identified before we move on. Uh, but nevertheless, as you can tell, uh, he's had quite a successful career uh, as a graduate of that institution. Well, okay, so with the... Now, being serious with the major challenges underway at present, uh, changes in the European landscape, the election of President Macron, the difficult negotiations on Brexit, the apparent resurgence of the Franco-German axis in the European Union, this is, of course, a very opportune time for us to review and discuss the Anglo-French uh, relationship in an overall picture, historical pattern, uh, etc., putting the jigsaw together. So Ed has kindly offered to speak on this theme of Britain's relations with uh, France on a long-term basis, and he's agreed to speak for about 30 minutes or so. We'll then have time for questions and answers uh, afterwards. And as a celebration of this evening's event, after the lecture, after the Q&A, if, you if you'd like to join us in the atrium to the left of the theatre as you exit, there will be a reception where we can mingle and talk uh, more informally. But before you get the wine and before you get the, the buffet, uh, can you please join me in welcoming our speaker this evening, Ed Llewellyn. Thank you, Kevin, for those um, very kind remarks. And it's a great pleasure to um, see you all here this evening. Uh, it's an enormous pleasure to be here at the LSE, but it's a, a particular pleasure to be able to uh, give this inaugural lecture in memory of my friend and your friend, Maurice Fraser. And it's a particular pleasure that uh, Nicolette... Um, Constantine, Theodore and Celestine are here um, this evening as, as well, as well as many of our friends. To say that Morris loved the LSE uh, would be something of an English understatement. I remember he used to speak about the LSE in near reverential tones and he was so very proud when he was made a professor and appointed head of the European Institute here. It was here that he made some of his closest friends and did some of his finest work. And one of the many sadnesses of Morris's death at the age of 55 was that that work was cut short. Amongst the tributes to Morris when he died, some of the most moving were from the students he taught here at the LSE. One of them Clementine, is a French member of my embassy staff in Paris. And when I said to Clementine that I was giving this lecture, she said simply, Morris, he was such an amazing man. And this comment, posted on the LSE website, was 
absolutely typical of many. It was a great privilege and a great inspiration to be taught, supervised, challenged and advised throughout the years by Professor Maurice Fraser. He was this rare combination of intellectual breadth, wit, humility, generosity and above all, dedication to serve his students. Thank you for a life which enriched so many. You left a trace on the fabric of this world. Amen to that. And amen to the words that cropped up repeatedly in the tributes to the Morris we all knew. Witty, kind, decent, civilised. The other place Morris spoke of with profound affection was, of course, the French lycée Charles de Gaulle here in London, where he went to school and where he met Nicolette. His time there shaped his entire outlook on life and instilled in him a deep and abiding bond with France. He devoted himself to strengthening the understanding between our countries and to clearing away some of the misunderstandings. He wrote for the French press and was a trustee of the Franco-British Council. He relished everything French, even though from time to time he, he occasionally found our French friends uh, as, as maddening as they no doubt found him. I might add to any French friends in the audience, you weren't alone in that. But at the end of the day, he loved France, and France loved him. And later in life, he was incredibly proud that that closeness of his association, his connection across the Channel, was recognised, not just here, but in Paris, when he was made a Chevalier of the Légion d'Honneur. And one of my last memories of Maurice is when he came round with Nicolette, to dinner at our home in Battersea when I was still at number 10. He wasn't well at that stage, and his cruel illness was taking its toll. But he lightened up, and the Morris sparkle returned when he saw my small children, then three and one, dancing to the French children's singer Chantal Goya. It brought back happy memories of his own childhood. He was pretty much dancing himself, and of a lifetime in love with French culture, history, politics, with France. I mention all of this because it's a great honour that I've been invited here tonight to talk about this relationship between uh, Britain and France. And I think fitting uh, too, given the Morris we all knew. Because Morris believed deeply in Britain's engagement in Europe and he believed deeply in the importance of Britain and France as two of Europe's leading powers working as closely as possible together in their own interests and in the interests of Europe as a whole. He believed, too, that this cooperation wasn't just a matter for governments, but for society as a whole. Take higher education, for example, where to date researchers at French and British institutions have co-authored a staggering 45,000 scientific papers together. And Morris certainly believed in the potential for higher education to break down barriers. And as Anthony Teasdale, who is here uh, tonight, has said, the creation of the joint LSE Sciences Po Masters Programme is a very fitting tribute to Morris's belief and his work. Morris, of course, did not live to see the result of the referendum on the 23rd of June last year. 
It is not, we know, the one he would wish to have wished to have seen. But I believe Morris would not have lost faith in the importance of Franco-British cooperation in the years ahead. Indeed, quite the opposite. He would have argued that it was more important than ever. And that is my contention today, that the relationship between our nations, between our countries, forged in the crucible of conflict and more recently of joint struggle and endeavour, is as important today as it's ever been, that our fortunes are bound together today, are as bound together today as they have ever been, and that the case for the closest possible cooperation between Britain and France is as strong today as it has ever been. And that is uh, the policy that the government is pursuing. Now, I have only lived in France for eight months, but I've learned that it's the done thing to structure one's thoughts in trois parties. (laughs) So I'm going to start by talking about our shared history, then reflect on the present before arriving finally at our future. Morris, of course, saw relations with France up close and personal during his time working for three successive foreign secretaries as the longest-serving special advisor in the Foreign Office, working for Geoffrey Howe, John Major and Douglas Hurd. He saw that relationship from the machinations over the ERM to the failures over Bosnia. And he deeply understood the depth, breadth, and the ambivalence of the relationship and the need to understand its past if we want to fashion its future. Britain's relationship with France is the longest and most complex and arguably the most important that we have with any country in the world. In 49 years' time, it'll be a 1,000 years since William the Conqueror landed uh, near Hastings and the Duke of Normandy became the King of England. There has been an honourable tradition of failed French invasions ever since. Now, the Eurostar arguably does the trick, but that first operation certainly shaped both our countries. The Bayeux Tapestry, which chronicles that story, turns out to have been but an opening instalment, a teaser in the long and winding narrative that is the Franco-British story. And if we brought that tapestry up to date, it would stretch all the way from Bayeux to Paris to London and back. It would tell of our highs and lows, of our friendships and enmities, of our triumphs and defeats. Yorktown and Agincourt, Wellington and Napoleon, Shakespeare and Moliere. Go anywhere in France or indeed in Britain and it's almost impossible to escape how deeply our cultures and our histories and our outlooks are intermingled. Not two separate threads, but multiple threads that are interwoven into a common tapestry. Go to Bordeaux, where memories of Eleanor of Aquitaine and of that region's association with England are everywhere, and where the output of its beautiful vineyards has so long been intertwined with London and her wine trade. Go to Calais, where Rodin's Berger's stubborn visage tells of the, one of the tenser moments in our relationship. Drive down the autoroute from Calais, and you soon pass the sign marking the site of the Field of the Cloth of Gold, 
where Henry VIII met Francis I, a, an inaugural um, summit between our countries, and whose 500th anniversary we will mark in 2020. And then reflect that in our contemporary version of the Bayer Tapestry, that that famous meeting would only be at the halfway point in the story since William the Conqueror set sail for Amber Rudd's constituency (laughs) nearly a millennium ago. So I hope you've got the point. We go back a long way. As Rudyard Kipling put it, the task of each had been to mould the other's fate as he wrought his own. And over the centuries, each country's national unity and identity has partly been forged, as uh, Isabel Toombs and Robert Toombs uh, point out in their remarkable book, partly been forged in relation to each other, often in opposition, often in more complex ways. It's a relationship that has at its core a mutual fascination, admiration, that vient of ideas, words, concepts, as as well as people. That's been the case throughout our long history, even when we've been at war. But, of course, it's easier to to forget that in our shorter history, and short here is a relative concept, Britain and France have been at peace now for over 200 years. And more than that, when the chips have been down in the last two centuries, especially in the last century, we've been side by side. Scarcely a day goes by somewhere in France without an event to mark how our countries have stood together in their darkest hours and the sacrifices we have made together to protect our freedoms and our way of life. The last few weeks are absolutely typical. The incredibly moving service at Bayeux Cathedral on the 6th of June, just a few weeks ago, Bayeux again, to mark the 73rd anniversary of the D-Day landings. The ceremony at Mont Valérien, the weekend before last, to mark de Gaulle's famous radio broadcast from London on the 18th of June, 1940, and which this year President Macron presided over. The unveiling in Calais last weekend of statues of Sir Winston Churchill and de Gaulle by Churchill's grandson, Sir Nicholas Soames, and the mayor of Calais. The 101st anniversary this Saturday, in two days' time, of the start of the Somme offensive, which cost the lives of 20,000 British soldiers on day one alone. Now, underpinning each of those stories about our countries are hundreds of thousands of stories about the individual people involved. My own great-uncle was a British soldier who was wounded in the Somme offensive, And my wife's great-grandfather was a French soldier whose unit took part in that battle a few weeks later. A few months ago, I visited the Commonwealth War Graves Commission at Bourgins in northern France, and I saw for myself the diligent work they do and how the remains of those who died are still emerging from the battlefield and the great care with which they are being laid to rest. Just a few weeks ago... Uh, there was a very moving service at a Commonwealth war grave uh, in northern France at which Private uh, Henry Parker was laid to rest, whose remains uh, were found just a few years ago 
and through the wonders of DNA, they traced his family, and there were 20 members of Private Parker's uh, family present at his funeral with full military honours, and attended, I might add, by uh, many French representatives and many many, um, of the villagers of the village where he was being uh, put to rest. These events remind us of how much we've been through as nations and why. How we've had each other's backs in times of mortal danger and how we still do. We fundamentally see, as countries and as people, that we are there for each other and we understand what the other is going through. That's why there's been such an amazing outpouring of sympathy and solidarity by the French people in response to the appalling attacks in London and Manchester over recent weeks and why it has been so heartfelt and so touching. After the attack in Manchester, President Macron, in office for just a few days, made a point of walking from the Elysee to the British Embassy, accompanied by his Prime Minister, Foreign Minister and Minister for Europe. In the days after the London Bridge attack, the British Prime Minister stood side by side with the French President at his invitation at the England-France friendly at the Stade de France as the crowd sang God Save the Queen just as the English crowd sang the Marseillaise at Wembley a few days after the attack at the Bataclan. Our countries are working together more closely every day to tackle these threats than they've ever done before. Our intelligence agencies, our police forces, our experts in counter-radicalisation, because we know that it's only by working together that we can detect and dismantle the plots being organised to harm our people. And consider this. Of those injured in the recent attack at London Bridge, eight were French citizens. Of the eight who died, three, tragically, were French citizens. And, of course, a British citizen died tragically in the attack at the Bataclan. Now, those sad facts reflect a much happier story about Franco-British relations today that our two countries are more closely connected, our tapestries woven more tightly than they've ever been before, a point which Morris understood and which delighted him. The figures, frankly, speak for themselves. 60,000 of our fellow citizens cross through the tunnel every single day. Hundreds of thousands of Brits and French choose to live and work in each other's countries. The Lycée, which Morris remembered so fondly, is flourishing and uh, more have opened now in London. There are no fewer than 12 million, 12 million British visits to France every year, more than to any other country in the world. And more French people visit the UK than any other nationality. These are human ties, ties of work, of friendship, of family. We do £69 billion worth of trade with each other every year. Brits drink more champagne than any other country in the world, and French people consume more whiskey per head than any other country in the world. Around 50 Olympic swimming pools of the stuff per year. (laughs) So I'm reliably informed. Of 5,000, over 5,000 of our companies invest in each other's countries, and over 500,000 people depend at the end of the month, on the jobs those investments have created. 
Over a thousand of our cities, towns and villages are twinned with each other. And last week celebrated the 70th anniversary of the first such example, the twinning between uh, Bristol and Bordeaux. And Alain Juppé was telling me just a couple of weeks ago as the mayor of Bordeaux how much that twinning meant to him and how much he was looking forward to going to Bristol uh, to mark that 70th anniversary. London is, as the Foreign Secretary likes to uh, point out, the sixth largest French city in the world. And between our governments, the cooperation is closer than ever, not just between the intelligence agencies, as I mentioned earlier, in tackling that terrorist threat, but right across the board. It'll be seven years in November since the Lancaster House Accords were signed. That defence and security cooperation, which they underpin, is even more important now than it was when David Cameron and Nicolas Sarkozy negotiated them. Today, the British and French armed forces are developing a culture and habit of cooperation which they enjoy with no other military in the world, frankly, uh, apart from the United States. We're developing and exercising together a joint expeditionary force that will allow us to deploy uh, British and uh, French soldiers, sailors and airmen on a common mission. I remember uh, a bit over a year ago when it conducted uh, its first uh, significant uh, joint exercise and the Ministry of Defence um, phoned up Downing Street and announced that a large French force was amassing off the um, south coast of Wales and phoned back um, uh, half an hour later to say that they'd started landing. Um, but it turned out um, that it was a, um, joint, uh, a joint endeavour. And British and French pilots are, as we sit here tonight, uh, operating together over the skies of Syria and Iraq, in some cases flying each other's aircraft with a um, uh, French pilot flying, flying an um, RAF Voyager and a uh, um, uh, Royal Air Force pilot has been uh, flying um, with the French. British and French soldiers are deployed together on NATO's eastern flank uh, in Estonia as we sit here this evening. And this week, our new aircraft carrier, HMS Queen Elizabeth, was put to sea for the first time. She will be joined in time by her sister ship, HMS Prince of Wales. And in the years ahead, there is no doubt that they will deploy uh, together with their French counterpart, the Charles de Gaulle, helping to protect and defend uh, both our nations. And even in the most sensitive domains, such as nuclear deterrence, we are working together while our uh, nuclear deterrence remain, of course, under sovereign national command. We are building, as stipulated in the Lancaster House Agreement, a joint test and validation facility at Valduc and new research facilities at Aldermaston, which will underpin the continued effectiveness of that ultimate insurance policy, our nuclear deterrent. This shows the depth and trust of this relationship, how we've come a long way in the last 200 years, and a very long way indeed since that tapestry began. And in and around Calais, French and British authorities have worked and are working, as I saw again last weekend, incredibly closely together to tackle the challenge of the migration crisis that is affecting the whole of Europe. 
So much, then, for the present. But what, I can hear Morris gently asking, about the future? Or as Lord Carrington would famously ask officials uh, in meetings when trying to draw some operational conclusions from an erudite but otherwise discursive discussion, and so... What do we conclude from all of that? What does it mean for the future of our relationship, in fu- a future in which Britain has voted to leave the European Union but remain a European power, heavily engaged in the affairs of the continent to which we are permanently geographically tied? My view is that the Entente Cordiale in 2017 is not just a nice thing to have, it is essential, a fundamental part of Britain's strategic choice and place in the world, and France's, for that matter. Because if you look at Britain and France from outer space, if you were to look at Britain and France from outer space, what would you see? Two of the largest countries in Europe, separated by what Churchill used to call a narrow strip of salty water, the fifth and sixth largest economies in the world, depending on the rate of exchange, Europe's only two civil and nuclear powers, two countries facing the challenges of globalization and fighting the menace of Islamist extremism and radicalization, two European powers, but both with a global vocation, two permanent members of the Security Council and members of NATO and the G7 and the G20, the two foremost military powers in Europe. And what would you conclude from all of that? You'd conclude, surely, that the path of friendship and alliance that we have chosen isn't only right, but essential. And the immediate context for that conclusion is, of course, the decision of the British people this time last year. There are some who take the view that Brexit Brexit means that cooperation with France will weaken. But it seems to me that as we leave the European Union, our bilateral cooperation becomes more important, not less. Of course, as one of the current custodians of that relationship, I feel that particularly strongly, and I believe that Morris, as one of its custodians and champions, would certainly have felt it too. But he wouldn't have been satisfied with merely coming to that conclusion. He would have asked again, so what? The clue was in his title here at the LSE, as we heard from Kevin earlier. Professor in practice. Not in theory, but in practice. His inquiring mind was always after practical solutions, solutions that worked. And his unique experience at the heart of government, at the heart of the relationship between our countries, but also at the heart of academe, meant that he was very well placed to do so. He was never one who thought that government had all the answers, quite the opposite. He believed very strongly in the power of ideas, in the role of universities and of civil society. And he would have believed very strongly, I suspect, that outside the European Union, bilateral arrangements are going to have to carry more of the strain. And I think he would have taken the view, as I do and as the government does, that the embassy has a very important role to play in promoting British interests by promoting that cooperation, in reinforcing the ties between our countries so that when the negotiations over our departure from the European Union are complete 
and indeed even while they are underway, that relationship is as strong as it can be. And that is what we are doing, not least on the human and personal level. A couple of months ago, as you may have seen, Prince William launched during his visit to Paris with the Duchess of Cambridge our Les Voisins program, which celebrates the intricate ties of neighbours that exist between our two countries. It got, and it is getting, a fantastic reception, as, I might add, the royal couple did, continuing the long and warm relationship between the royal family and France. It's an astonishing fact that the Queen... Her Majesty the Queen has, known, has not only known every president of the Fifth Republic, but both presidents of the Fourth Republic as well. And if you watch the archive footage of the Queen's welcome in 1957, when a million people lined the banks of the Seine, or the footage of her four subsequent visits, you would frankly struggle to remember that France has a somewhat complicated relationship with monarchy. (laughs) Just last week, we launched the uh, brand-new Franco-British Young Leaders Programme, which draws together 30 to 40 of our most promising uh, young people to spend time in and learn about each other's countries. I found it astonishing that we didn't have uh, such a programme already but we do now. It includes some fantastic young people between 25 and 40, and it's going to build up over the years a superb network of people who, we hope, will be in leadership positions in their countries in the years to come and who understand what we mean to each other. Indeed, this program was conceived with the help of the Franco-British Council, of which uh, Morris was such a leading light and was announced by uh, the British Prime Minister and the French President at the Franco-British Summit, the last Franco-British Summit, in March last year, just a few weeks after Morris's death. Later this year, we will have the next such summit between Britain and France. And as we work towards that summit, we will look to build on the very strong cooperation that exists already. I've given you some examples of that. In defence, certainly, where there is still more to do as we approach the 10th anniversary of the signing of the Lancaster House Accords in 2020, and on which President Macron has already signalled his wish to go further. In foreign policy, where Britain and France work incredibly closely together, as you know, at the United Nations, voting together on 95% of Security Council resolutions and writing the majority of them together. But that reinforced cooperation should extend beyond the defence and security domain. We need, let me conclude by saying, we need, as we embark on this new chapter, to be bold and ambitious, to display that same sense of drive and same sense of purpose that has characterized this relationship when it's been at its best. And as I hope I've underlined, and as Morris showed throughout his life, that responsibility does not only lie with the government. It's also for our academics, our business people, our students, and our societies to build. 
Often the most dramatic and game-changing projects start off with considerable scepticism, the Channel Tunnel being a case in point. Mrs. Thatcher famously came round to the idea over a late-night drink at the British Embassy in Paris and suddenly became animated about the project and a staunch proponent of it. It would be nice, she said, to have something exciting getting underway, and she, from that moment, gave it her enthusiastic support. So it's with that sense of ambition and optimism that we should, and I believe we are, approaching the next chapter of the Franco-British story. In two years' time, Britain will leave the European Union. But 20 years from now, Britain and France will still be leading nations of Europe, working together, side by side, literally, as well as metaphorically, looking to each other as we face similar challenges in this young century. So as we enter this new phase, this relationship matters to Britain as much as it's ever done. Like any relationship, we need to invest in it, and invest in it even more when times are uncertain and when change is all around. That's what the British Embassy in Paris is doing. That is what the British government is doing. That is what Britain is committed to doing this year, next year, and then the years to come. I hope and believe that Professor Fraser would approve. Thank you, Ed, very much indeed. That's uh, a timely reminder of the substance of the uh, relationship. But I'm tempted to start off, if I may, that uh, you talk about the strength of the bilateral relationship, but perhaps it's also the bilateral relationship which uh, shows so many contrasts, the biggest contrasts. One obvious contrast is between popular narratives of what we think of each other, the British of the French and the French uh, of, the, of the British. Being an ambassador in Paris, uh, this can't have escaped your attention, surely, um, but it presumably impinges to some extent in terms of how we can sell Britain uh, to the French at the, in the present, at the present time. The contrast between popular narratives and the actual substance of economics and foreign policy. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, over the years, and it remains true today, um, uh, you know, we have views of each other um, born of the history that I've um, uh, just described. Um, I think you know, we quite enjoy, in some ways, the... Um, stereotypes of, mm. of, of, of each other. Um, uh, I, I notice that. I certainly notice that every day in in, um, in Paris. But I think, as I tried to explain there, beneath it all is um, uh, considerable mutual respect and um, and actually affection, um, born of um, affection. That, yes. Born of that um, uh, somewhat complicated, uh, complicated story, um, uh, and, and as, as I said, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a tragic example, but 
um, the, the recent, the, those recent attacks, um, you know, the, the British Embassy in Paris, we've been absolutely flooded with messages um, of sympathy and solidarity and really heartfelt. And I think that speaks to, um, uh, that's, that speaks to, you know, the way we see each other. We've been neighbours um, since time began and um, neighbours who know each other, um, every facet of each other, um, very, very well. And um, so I think, you know, I think the sort of popular narrative, if you, if you could call it that, um, it has its place. Um, um, uh, we like to make fun of each other occasionally. Um, as you pointed out, um, I have a Franco-British family, so I'm more than conscious of that, I can, <laughs> I can assure you. But um, I think at root... Um, uh, you know, we come together. Okay. Now, I know you don't want to uh, talk specifically about uh, Brexit, so let's move on to the future. Uh, there is a theme that you've mentioned in your lecture about uh, the importance of defence cooperation historically and in the future. It's not... Uh, of course, many people at the moment are speculating whether that defence cooperation could be sustained, uh, Britain possibly looking more towards uh, Washington, Paris looking again towards uh, Berlin. You had uh, much confidence that the defence cooperation would be uh, sustained th through the short, medium and indeed the long term. Uh, but uh, th there are countervailing pressures, aren't there? I have great confidence that um, we need to and will build on that cooperation for um, the following reasons. I mean, the, the first reason is um, that you know, this security relationship between our countries goes back a long way, and it goes back a long way because our, our shared national interests go, go back uh, a, a very long way. Um, you know, as I pointed out in that, um, in my remarks, I barely a week goes by without um, uh, an event taking place somewhere in France, which I very often attend, um, which really bears in on you the depth of that sacrifice and um, the threats we've faced down together in in the last um, hundred, two hundred years, particularly the last. Um, hundred years. Um, secondly, um, you look at uh, Europe's um, uh, security situation today and it is more precarious than it's been in a generation. Um, you look around the um, periphery of, of, uh, of Europe and it's um, quite a worrying scene with uh, uh, the migration crisis to the south, uh, an assertive Russia um, to the east, to the north and the east, um, the uh, terrorist threat, um, which we're all grappling with, but Britain and France um, perhaps uh, particularly so. So the need is, is, is there. And if you look at the capability um, around Europe, uh, Britain and France between them account for 
uh, around half of um, uh, European defence spending. You know, we are um, very big players together. Um, and we are two nations that have um, uh, militaries that are uh, highly professional and uh, capable of um, closing with the enemy and killing them, if I can put it okay. like that. And, and so, you know, I think for all of those reasons, it will endure because um, it needs to. And we have shown in the last seven years that we are serious about this relationship. Lancaster House um, is being implemented. And uh, if you compare the cooperation between our militaries in 2017 uh, compared to 2010, there has been a step change. Um, uh, and for all of those reasons, you know, this is going to carry on. And the, my final reason, of course, is that you know, the will is there, both from the British government, the British Prime Minister, and also from the new French president, who during his election campaign, made a whole um, significant speech on defence in which he specifically mentioned uh, this area of cooperation between us and had some quite specific ideas for reinforcing it. During his election campaign, of course, he also mentioned the camp of refugees in Calais, the jungle. Um, One would expect turbulence and uh, one would expect that this could be a major controversy in the next uh, year or so as we're talking about uh, Brexit and the future relations. Uh, is that resolvable? I think, the situ- I think Calais is um, a very good example of the sort of cooperation I was talking about, or I've been talking about. I went to Calais uh, on my first day as the incoming ambassador. Indeed, I arrived, as it were, through- I popped out through the Channel Tunnel Um, courtesy of the border force in one of their cars and I went to Calais precisely because I wanted to see uh, on day one exactly what our cooperation uh, is like in practice how those juxtaposed controls operate what the security arrangements are at that border um, how the French and British um, police uh, and uh, and authorities are working uh, together and I popped out of the tunnel at um, 7 o'clock in the morning got out of the car and was greeted by the French police and the, one of the three French police officers who was there to um, uh, greet me was a colleague I'd worked with in Sarajevo 11 years ago um, and who is now um, the number three in the police air et frontière uh, at the border. And that, in its way, tells you a lot about the way Britain and France work together all over uh, the world. But that cooperation in Calais... has seen a very significant improvement in the situation now um, compared, say, to a a year ago. Um, I I don't want to sound complacent at all because it needs enormous vigilance and um, uh, the numbers have been um, going up there again a bit in recent weeks. But uh, the way the French authorities dismantled the jungle, the way um, um, we've worked together to build those um, security um, to secure the port area and to secure the channel tunnel area when you go as many of you will have done um, on the Eurostar and you come out of the tunnel you see all those fences along the side you know they are joint work between Britain and France and we paid for for much of it um, much much of that work um, because we know that this 
cooperation benefits both our countries. And I want to pay tribute tonight to the role the French police have been playing. The French interior minister was there um, last Friday. He sent further units up to uh, the Calais area. It's a very good example of us working very closely together in our joint interests because that Latouquet agreement, which, by the way, is a bilateral treaty, it works for both of us. And um, as I say, the situation is, is considerably improved, and I hope it can stay that way. And I hope, as we did last Saturday in Calais, um, with the mayor of Calais, we can now look to a new chapter for Calais and the people of Calais in which um, the economy can start to revive. We had a 1,000 Brits coming over last Saturday at the invitation of the mayor of Calais um, to spend a very enjoyable day in the town and spending their money and um, um, putting some money into the economy. And I hope we'll see a lot more cooperation of that kind between Calais and Dover and Calais and Kent and uh, in the weeks to come. Okay, good. Um, let's open it up to questions uh, from the audience. There are colleagues with microphones uh, upstairs and downstairs. Uh, if um, you could simply say who you are and then uh, ask the question, please. Uh, if it's okay with Ed, we might take several questions at the same time. So uh, questions, please. The uh, lady in the front here, please. Um, my name is Catherine. I'm a summer school student here. Um, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how your work as chief of staff to – is this on? Sorry. Yes, yes. Uh, how your work as chief of staff has, like, readied you to work as the ambassador uh, and how, like, you see things differently now because you're in a different position. Okay. Thank you. Other questions, uh, please. The gentleman on the third row, just here. My name's Ian Orr, and I'm a retired UK diplomat. I welcomed the ambassador's reminding us that uh, France and Britain have cooperated very closely on, se on Security Council resolutions. However, there was a worrying sign last week when there was a General Assembly uh, resolution about the dispute that the UK has with Mauritius over the British Indian Ocean Territory. Uh, and on that, <laughs> we lost. 15 votes to 94, and hardly any of our EU colleagues supported us. Most abstained, including France, Germany, Italy, Spain. Would that have happened two years ago? Thank you. And perhaps a last question in this, in this round? My name is Richard, and I'm a master's student here at the LEC. Um, you mentioned the particular importance of the relationship in light of Brexit. I'd be interested in your comments as to, the, as to how the French perspectives of that relationship have changed in light of Brexit. What is the importance of the relationship to the French now relative to other uh, relationships it might have, particularly with Germany, for instance? Okay, do you want to take Yeah. Um, Catherine, uh, your question. Um, well, I was Chief of Staff to David Cameron, as, um, as Kevin pointed out, for a long period, uh, both in um, uh, opposition and then for six and a bit years in Downing Street. Um, I have a sort of rather unusual career because it's a mix of um, politics and diplomacy. I mean, I was, um, as Kevin pointed out, I've also worked in Hong Kong as Chris Patton's advisor the 20th anniversary of the handover 
coming up uh, tomorrow. I can barely believe it. It seems like yesterday. Um, and I've done a couple of stints in Sarajevo uh, as well. Um, I think, I mean, first of all, working in number 10 is an enormous privilege. And um, uh, every day of those six years was a privilege working through that, walking through that um, uh, big black door uh, every morning. I, I think um, it's been helpful preparation in that, um, uh, particularly, um, you know, with Paris, I, I've worked with French colleagues, I've worked with colleagues in, in the Elysee. Um, uh, you know, I, I've, it's given me, you know, a useful... Um, um, preparation in terms of sort of the people I'm dealing with every every day, and an understanding, I hope, of um, French politics and um, and and so on. Um, so it's been it's been it was it was a useful um, experience. Although um, you know, being an ambassador um, uh, is obviously a different and non-political um, role, um, which I'm extremely proud and honoured to be doing. Um, would you, could I just follow that up and say that, um, you are unusual in that position of combining a political career with uh, diplomacy. Um, you were asking the question about the impact of being chief of staff. Uh, do you think this is something which successors uh, would try to combine? It, it's not the easiest combination, uh, presumably, uh, you find some of the tension at the moment with the combination in your career between uh, your uh, work with David Cameron and uh, your diplomatic role now. So uh, life would have been a lot simpler if you'd just chosen one, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, you know, look, I'm, I'm, um, yeah, I'm very focused on the job that um, I was appointed by uh, uh, Theresa May to doing in... Um, Last September, um, uh, you know, as I hope explained to Catherine, I think my um, previous roles, but not only my um, role in Number Ten, but some of my previous, you know, foreign policy roles, as I mentioned earlier, my time in in Bosnia has actually been extremely helpful in in, in many ways um, uh, in understanding, you know, security concerns and, and operating with the military and the police and and and, and so on. Um, no, I mean, you know, I'm in particular job I'm in now, and I'm focused on, on, on that. Um, on Ewan's question, um, the French abstained last week. I mean, you know, um, as you pointed out, the figures um, uh, are quite substantial. Um, uh, so I think, um, uh, you know, we work together a lot, but we don't always um, end up voting the same way. But on a lot of stuff, we on most issues, certainly in the Security Council, as you, as you know, we do. So I, I wouldn't read too much into that. Um, and uh, on Richard's question about um, uh, French perspectives, um, you know, they, they, I think, take the view that, um, as President Macron said uh, in the Elysee Garden um, uh, two weeks ago when the Prime Minister was there and they gave their press conference together, you know, they respect the decision of the British people. Um, it's not necessarily the decision they, you know, they hope for, but they understand and respect that decision. And um, 
they are keen to uh, work with us on these bilateral issues where um, our interests are so much converging and where every day you know, we see the importance of, of that cooperation. I think they feel that um, you know, quite strongly, as I alluded to earlier on the, on the defence side. Okay, thanks. Perhaps uh, just a few more uh, questions and other round questions. Uh, John Young, I'm a teacher of politics and history, and I was wondering, in the light of the referendum uh, result last year, whether there might have been some in France who felt that General de Gaulle's uh, well-known uh, scepticism was in any way justified. Thank you for that. Um, other questions? Could you take the lady in the centre, please? Um, my name's Bryony. I work for an investment bank. Um, another Brexit-related question, I'm afraid, but how far would you agree, if at all, that there is, for the future success and security of the European Union as a political or social experiment, there is a sense that Brexit cannot be seen to be successful for the UK? Any uh, last questions? Uh, and the gentleman here, please. Hi, my name is Benji. I'm a summer school student. Um, I'm American. There and, you are. <laughs> I'm American, and unfortunately, it seems like the United States has sort of retreated a little bit from its commitment to Europe. So, are you know what is Britain and France doing to sort of take on more of that role in uh, supporting NATO against Russian aggression? Thank you. And there's a question upstairs. Yes, oh, there's two questions upstairs. Can we just take the yeah. two? Thank you. Um, I'm Darnell. I'm just a student. But um, my question is... Just a student. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We don't tend to to say that at the LSE, actually. Um, You're paying my salary. (laughs) (laughs) I import. So my question is, um, how how will the British government juggle its diplomacy between Washington and the rest of Europe? Because something I'd I'd like to point out is the the letter that um, the European... um, powers wrote against Trump leaving the Paris Agreement, which, um, which Theresa May didn't join. And I think it's symbolic of the fact that she's in a position where she wants to appease Donald Trump, but she can't um, let go of her friendship and her ties with the rest of Europe. So how does she balance that act? And um, in that, will she lose the special relationship that she has with France and um, let, say, France become better allies with Germany and, and, and get locked out? Thank you. And there's one last question. Yes, okay. Hi, my my name is Jadrup. I'm also from America, and that was a very similar question to what I was going to ask. So I'll ask another one, which is, how do you think um, the Second World War and Britain and France's closeness during that war uh, affects the relationship today? And once um, Britain leaves the EU, do you think that'll be a key factor in keeping the relationship strong? Okay, so we have some common themes. Uh, that, uh, we're going to run out of time, so if you might conflate some of the themes. Okay, let me try and do that. Um, but on the um, uh, Brian's question, um, look, you know, we want, as the Prime Minister um, has said many times, uh, and as she said in her letter uh, at the end of March, you know, we want the European Union to succeed. Uh, you know, the British decision um, to leave the European Union was not a decision to 
um, harm the European Union. It's in Britain's national interest um, that the European Union succeeds. It's in the interest of our um, uh, friends, partners, allies, neighbours that the European Union succeeds. You know, we are um, 20 miles from the mainland of Europe. We're not going anywhere else. Um, So, um, you know, that's why the Prime Minister has been very clear on that point uh, in her letter. She's been very clear on that point with um, uh, European leaders. And it's why, you know, we want to come to an agreement to deepen um, special partnership that works for everybody. Um, On um, uh, your question about... um, I didn't catch your name, apologies. Benji, um, on, uh, on Britain and France uh, working more closely together within NATO, we are already doing that. I mean, um, uh, uh, you know, Britain, as you know, is um, one of the few uh, NATO nations that is already hitting the 2% defence target. Not just, by the way, the 2% defence target, but also the 07 development target. I think we're in the, the only major European country that's um, doing that. So we're putting our money where our mouth is. And if you look at our military right now, they're starting to get a lot of, um, you know, brand new equipment um, um, coming on stream. I think the Royal Air Force has just taken delivery of its 17th A400M um, aircraft. uh, And uh, and across the forces, you see that that renewal taking place. Uh, And as I mentioned, there's a good example in Estonia right now of Britain and France deploying together to secure um, NATO's eastern flank. Um, uh, you know, that's an important, I think, practical demonstration of, uh, of the sort of thing you're um, talking about. Um, on um, your question, the, the mere student, um, on um, uh, cooperation between... Um, what well, the relationship between um, uh, Washington and our relationship with, with Paris. We don't see these things as mutually exclusive. Um, Britain has always had a close, um, uh, very close relationship with Washington, but we've had a very close relationship with um, France too. We don't see these things as uh, at all as a zero-sum game. Britain has made its position clear on, um, on the climate change issue, um, uh, at the time, but I think it goes to um, uh, your question about um, uh, your question about you know World War Two and and the impact it's had. I mean, it, it influences both countries' outlooks. There's, um, um, I, as ambassador, I see that um, very frequently. I saw it in um, um, uh, at Utah Beach just. Um, three weeks ago where, you know, we were all together and um, with our America, with my American colleague and with my French colleagues, and it's a reminder of the shared sacrifices we've um, uh, had together, Uh, but it's also a very poignant reminder of our shared future and, um, um, you know, we're in this together and we're going to stay like that. Okay, thank you. I think we are out of time, but I've already promised you the reward of reception uh, outside the theatre on the left in the atrium. 
In a moment, I'm going to uh, lead uh, Ed out of the lecture theatre and uh, to the reception. Uh, you'll be able to talk to him there more informally. Uh, I hope uh, you feel this has been a fitting memorial as the first lecture of the Morris uh, Fraser uh, series. Uh, and I would simply ask you now to join me in giving a very warm round of thanks to our speaker, Ed Llewellyn.